In the past, from an oncology perspective, GU cancers were sort of the poor stepkids to the more exciting tumors with lots of interesting data. But in the last five years, first renal cell cancer and more recently prostate cancer suddenly became the focus of a number of new and exciting trial reports. I asked Dr. Dan George to cut to the chase and tell us what happened in Chicago and what we need to know in terms of GU cancers, and particularly the big news that came out in terms of prostate cancer. Dr. George began by commenting on what might be viewed as a first-generation trial of prostate cancer, this time a study in locally advanced disease. Neil, this is sort of the next set of experiments in the continuum of understanding what's the best way to manage these locally advanced patients. So this is really for patients with presentation of prostate cancer that's aggressive, that's in high likelihood expanded beyond the prostate gland. So T3, T4 tumors, large bulky tumors, high-grade tumors, or high PSAs. And in that patient population, you know, hormonal therapy and radiation therapy is one of, if not the standard of care for many of these patients. The question has always been, that's been based on data comparing radiation therapy alone to radiation and hormonal therapy. And so, you know, there's always been this sort of backdrop of how much is the local radiation therapy really adding to the overall survival advantage? We get the local control issue, but if it's not necessarily a bulky, bulky tumor, it's really more high grade, is that really necessary? So this was really an important study, a 500-plus patient randomized phase three study with overall survival as the endpoint, and there was about a 20% improvement in overall survival with the combination of radiation and hormones versus hormones alone. And this was hormones for life. This wasn't six months of hormones, you know, a year of hormones. This was continuous androgen deprivation therapy. So you're really maximizing that aspect of the treatment, and yet you're still getting additional survival advantage with the radiation therapy. And to me, you know, that's a really remarkable finding, given how long these patients live. These are years of survival. We're talking about effects on the pace of metastatic disease that local control and local therapy must be having. And it really builds on the fact that we've seen in recent years the data around sort of salvage or adjuvant radiation therapy after radical prostatectomy also improving survival in patients with these same kind of extracapsular positive margin tumors. So to me, it's sort of one more piece of evidence that radiation therapy early in prostate cancer really is beneficial for the lifetime of that patient. It, you know, it brings into question the mechanism, which I'm not 100% sure we know, whether it's all local control or whether there is some activation of immune recognition through radiation of tumor or some other work at play here. But whatever that mechanism be, the overall survival data is very convincing. I like this number. 89 people died without radiation, 51 with the radiation. Pretty big difference. It really is. What about the management of these patients off study? How do you approach it? And what about the duration of androgen deprivation and the type of androgen deprivation? Well, it really does call into question, is this the standard of care now, lifelong hormonal therapy? I don't necessarily think so. Again, for a 500-patient trial, we're looking at maybe 20% or less deaths here in that patient population. So I'm not sure lifelong hormonal therapy is necessarily the standard, but certainly some lengthy course, a year to three years from our BOLA experiences and 
And RTOG studies would suggest, you know, at least a year, if not up to three years of hormonal therapy. I could tell you, our practices at Duke, we tend to do somewhere around two years of hormonal therapy still for these patients with this really locally advanced, again, high PSA, bulky, high-grade tumors. And what about antiandrogens? Do you do total androgen blockade? You know, that's a good question, and that was done here. It's not necessarily, again, sort of our standard of care across the board. I don't know. Again, that would probably require a separate study to look at the combination versus monotherapy in this setting to really answer that question. You know, if you want to practice evidence-based medicine, that's what I would do, factoring in, of course, the cost and other issues that affect patients. All right, let's talk a little bit about some of the systemic therapy presentations that oncologists would be particularly interested in, beginning with the so-called TROPIC study that looked at the new taxane, carbazitaxel. Yeah, you know, I thought this was really a pretty interesting result. You know, we hadn't been hearing a lot about cabazitaxel in other cancer diseases or even much in prostate cancer in way of kind of phase two data. So this really kind of jumped from phase one right to phase three. A little bit of a high-risk study because this was done in a patient population that had already been exposed to, and in some cases heavily exposed to, a first-line taxane, docetaxel. And then these patients were then randomized to either cabazitaxel or mitoxantrone. And again, about a 500 or so patient trial showing about a 30% improvement in overall survival in favor of the cabazitaxel arm. And really a pretty substantial hazard ratio when you think about what primary chemotherapy, first-line chemotherapy has for a survival advantage is about the same. So it looks like we're taking our survival advantage with docetaxel, and we're adding to that with this second-line taxane cabazitaxel. Can you talk a little bit more about what we know about this agent, how it differs from other taxanes in terms of the mechanisms and also the toxicity profile? Yeah, you know, I think these are really the critical issues here, and I'm not convinced from this study that we have necessarily defined a difference in this taxane from other taxanes, but putatively, in the laboratory and in preclinical settings, it appears that this taxane is less of a substrate for peak lycoprotein and the mechanisms of efflux of chemotherapies out of the cell. So, you know, if that is the mechanism driving resistance to taxanes, you'd postulate this agent would be less sensitive to that mechanism and therefore more effective. There's probably other mechanisms of resistance at play that could factor into whether or not the cells are ultimately responsive or resistant. And to be clear, these aren't necessarily absolute taxotere or docetaxel refractory patients. These are patients that had prior exposure. But to what extent they are still somewhat responsive to a taxane mechanism, we don't know. So it was compared to mitoxantrone and anthracycline, a different mechanism, and shown superior in that setting. I think that's really the question, though, is, is this a better drug than docetaxel? And should this be an agent we start thinking about in the first-line setting? I don't think this data gets us there. We'll have to see future studies to answer that question. But it does suggest to me that, you know, this is the evidence base we have for using a second-line chemotherapy. And rather than retreat with docetaxel, following the evidence base, I would retreat with cabazitaxel in this setting. Is that the way you're using it in people after docetaxel? 
it's just approved, Neil, so we haven't really had a lot of commercial kind of clinical experience with it yet. It's just getting into the pharmacies. But that's how I'm presenting it to my patients is particularly the patients that have responded to docetaxel. If you look at the subgroups, the patients that had substantial exposures to docetaxel, you know, more than 900 milligrams per meter squared, those are the patients that continued to show response to cabazitaxel. So they're not the only ones, but it does suggest that even with prolonged exposure to taxanes, they can still respond to cabazitaxel. So I'm looking at it as, well, let's do our best treatment we can with docetaxel up front, but when we need to stop, whether because of disease progression or increased adverse events, to take a break and then to move on to cabazitaxel in that setting rather than retreat with docetaxel. What about side effects? I'm looking to see the neurotoxicity. What was a neurotoxicity? I don't see You know, it. you got to be a little bit careful in judging this. So these are patients that are already had taxane and not had significant neurotoxicity. So the people that got docetaxel and had significant toxicity, neurotoxicity, grade 2 or greater, weren't allowed on study. So you've kind of already pre-selected people that are somewhat neurotolerant, if you will, of taxanes. And then re-exposure, we didn't see a lot of grade 2, grade 3 toxicity with this. And again, probably the exposure time to this carbazotaxel wasn't dramatic. I mean, on average, it was about six cycles. So we're not looking at necessarily that much additional cumulative exposure. So that wasn't really the problem. Toxicity-wise, the issues were more neutropenia, which was more pronounced and profound than what we saw in the frontline docetaxel settings, and even some deaths on study related to, in many cases, infection. So that's something that needs to be balanced in this population, recognizing these patients are still being treated with prednisone. They are likely to have more pronounced neutropenia and using growth factors perhaps a little bit more proactively than even was written into the study may be necessary in patients that we're concerned about. Did you actually put patients on the study or use this drug yourself? I didn't participate in this study at Duke, but in looking over the data, that was our sense of it, that many of these patients had not just pretreatment with chemotherapy, but also radiation therapy. And that pelvic spinal kind of marrow radiation may be as much damaging as the chemotherapy. So taking those factors into account, I'd be a little bit more bullish about using growth factor support for these patients. Yeah, I mean, you saw a lot of neutropenia in the other arm, but definitely not as much as in the carbazotaxel arm. The other thing I see here, but I don't know kind of what it means clinically, is diarrhea. Yeah, that's definitely a different side effect profile of this drug than docetaxel. And I think for the most part, that's a manageable toxicity. I mean, this is a once every three week dosing, so there's enough time to get control of that. But there will be some patients that don't tolerate it because of diarrhea. And I think that's something, you know, again, we're going to have to counsel patients about. We're going to have to be proactive. It's not the kind of toxicity they're used to dealing with, say, versus our colorectal patients. How about the presentation by Howard Shear on the so-called ASCENT-2 trial, looking at docetaxel a couple of different ways? Yeah, you know, I think this falls in line with a series of studies now that have been conducted trying to build on docetaxel as a frontline chemotherapy, recognizing that docetaxel with prednisone is our standard of care and is not necessarily our maximum tolerated dose regimen. How can we improve upon this? And there was some very encouraging randomized phase two data that suggested that high-dose intermittent dosing of calcitriol, essentially IV vitamin D, could really improve upon the sensitivity and response and survival of patients treated with docetaxel. So they looked at this. Now, the IV vitamin D calcitriol requires weekly dosing. 
So because of that, they made the decision to dose the docetaxel on a weekly basis as well. So they really changed a couple of variables here. The control arm was docetaxel, prednisone every three weeks, prednisone continuously. The experimental arm was docetaxel weekly three out of four weeks with IV calcitriol and no prednisone. And in that arm, they saw an actual decrease in the survival, not an increase. So for that population, it was about 16 and a half versus 19 months overall survival for the two arms. And it really suggests that weekly chemotherapy in this patient population, whether it's because of increased toxicity around fatigue, whether it's because of lower efficacy, whatever the mechanism it's inferior to an every three-week regimen. And to what extent the calcitriol played into that, it's hard to say, but it certainly didn't overcome that. And it's not robust enough for us to say we should be using this. But it certainly calls into question, how do you build on docetaxel prednisone? And I would actually just come out and say that, to me, it's further validation that docetaxel prednisone is a pretty good regimen. I mean, it's a very active drug in this disease. We're seeing this in the frontline setting. We're seeing taxanes in the second-line setting. We're seeing it hard to build on it because it's a pretty effective strategy. And we'll see that with the other Phase three study we'll talk about, the CLGB study, 90401. That was the next one I was going to ask you about, what I would call the heartbreaker of the year. I was really disappointed at this one. Yeah, you know, as a co-author, I got to tell you, I had a little bit of um, kind of academic horse in this race as well. I've overseeing some of the correlative science for this study, which I think will be very important in understanding why this trial didn't meet its primary endpoint. But a thousand patient study, a well-powered cooperative group study looking at docetaxel prednisone plus or minus bevacizumab. And this study, we really had a very good rationale based on both some prognostic factors around VEGF and plasma and urine, both preliminary phase two data in CLGB, multi-center data suggesting bevacizumab really adding to a docetaxel-based regimen, you know, had a number of positive phase two studies to choose from. This was really our lead strategy and something, it was an intergroup study, you know, bought into by SWOG and ECOG as well as NCI Canada, and very disappointing to us that it didn't reach its primary endpoint. It did, in fact, reach all of its secondary endpoints. So progression-free survival, response rate, PSA declines were all statistically significantly positive. And that says to me, Neil, that VEGF is indeed, you know, a credentialed target in prostate cancer. It's not that we didn't pick the right target because we wouldn't have hit those endpoints. It does suggest to what extent that effect was diluted in a unselected patient population and to what extent the natural history after treatment, after progression, played into that decrease in overall survival. You know, it's really weird. Something just really hit me. I mean, I've seen these data 15 times. It just hit me that this is the same basic thing that was seen in breast cancer where it's used and approved. There's no survival advantage in breast cancer, and there's a progression-free survival advantage. Yeah. We have five drugs approved in kidney cancer, all with progression-free survival advantage, none of them showing overall survival advantage. So why is this a negative study? I mean, I know that was the endpoint, but wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. So just hit me. You know, it's a concerning issue around prostate cancer. You know, the issue comes down to is how valid is progression-free survival as an endpoint in cancer in general, but in prostate cancer specifically. And there was an abstract a poster presentation by Susan Halabi this year that looked at CLGB 
90206, our renal study of interferon bevacizumab versus interferon alone, showing that progression-free survival was about 50% accurate by the statistical measures of predicting for overall survival. In prostate cancer, that same analysis, based on this and other studies, suggests it's about 30% predictive. So the problem we have in prostate cancer is that our measurements of disease progression, PSA increase, radiographic progression, clinical progression, are not very sensitive or specific for overall survival. And so we don't have the best imaging of this disease. Bone scan is really an indirect measure. We don't have an all-encompassing biomarker. PSA is really reflective of engine receptor biology and not necessarily all the potential mechanisms of progression. Clinical symptoms in this disease can be nonspecific. And so at the end of the day, you know, we're still struggling with how do we optimize our measurements of disease progression so that we can validate that for better FDA approvals. And in the absence, the FDA is holding us to a higher standard. And I think that's why you're going to see more studies like the cabazitaxel study, where you're looking at a later time course in the natural history. Patients are only going to live a year, you know, and the median survival in mitoxantrum was about 12 months in that study. So you're closer to the overall survival endpoint. You don't need progression-free survival as an intermediate. But it does really worry us in terms of trying to move our therapies in prostate cancer earlier in the natural history. If we don't have measurements of progression-free survival, how are we going to be able to do that? I got to say, I'm saying to myself, hmm, thinking about the other solid tumors. I mean, it's different in ovary and renal, you know, where you see single agent activity. But when I think about lung and I think about breast, and even if I think about colon, Hmm. I wonder if it's really that much different in terms of what's happening to the tumor. I don't know. You're part of this study. Do you think there was a benefit? I think there's a benefit. I think there's a couple of things that this calls into play. One is the duration of therapy. When you think about this target, vascular endothelial growth factor, it's not a mutated signaling pathway driving disease progression and, say, oncogenic addiction. This is really more of a microenvironment factor that we're targeting. And in that essence, should we be thinking about this more like we think about bisphosphonates or rank L antibody in the setting of prostate cancer, a microenvironment that should be continuously inhibited beyond just the cytotoxic therapy? I'm not necessarily saying that that should be using bevacizumab, but targeting this growth factor pathway, you may want to take a longer approach than just focusing on the chemotherapy window. And that, to me, is one of the takeaways. The other is, as I mentioned, you know, predictive markers, looking at whether that's circulating proteins, whether that's genomic profiles, whatever that may be, host factors that help us understand who's likely to benefit more from this strategy than others. As I mentioned, you know, part of why we did this study was based on the prognostic significance of elevated VEGF levels in prostate cancer patients. But we didn't study just the patients with elevated levels. It may turn out from our analyses that the patients with baseline elevated plasma VEGF levels are in fact the group that benefits, and the group with low VEGF levels maybe don't benefit at all. We don't know that, but I think that may give us some clues into why this study was tantalizingly active but not positive in terms of an overall survival. Well, as a person who's done eight hour-long interviews with ovarian cancer investigators in the last two weeks, and my head is like swimming with that BEV study that they present. I've heard so many different perspectives, but I mean, actually, if you think about it, they saw a difference in effect based on duration. 
the people with an ovarian trial who got it just during the chemo did not, were like the control group, and the group that got it for 15 months is where the benefit is. So unless you find some SNP or something that's going to be really exciting and predictive of benefit, is that going to be it for Bev and prostate cancer? I think that there's so many other diseases that Bev is active in. I think it's going to be difficult to energize a whole new study around this. There is an ongoing study. It's completed accrual with a fribliset, which is a VEGF trap, a sort of a dual-headed antibody, if you will, for VEGF A and B. And we may get some additional results. That's a 1,300-patient trial. We may get some additional results from that study. And there's a number of tyrosine kinase inhibitors that target VEGF. So I wouldn't be surprised if others in this field re-engage in prostate cancer in a little bit different design, really kind of learning from these experiences, but that might not necessarily be bevacizumab itself. Okay, so let's spend the last few minutes just chatting a little bit about renal cell. Kind of looked like not quite as exciting in renal cells maybe a few years ago. We were due for a down year. We've had a lot of new drugs every year. A couple of things. One, an old drug, Hydosol 2, the SELECT study, a little bit disappointing. This was a real vested interest in being able to predict who's going to respond to Hydosol 2. We've been after that holy grail for about 30 years now, and our lead approach here, CA9 staining, just didn't pan out at all. So really kind of leaves us with still the clinical factors in terms of patient prognosis and tumor profile. Again, clear cell carcinoma being the main one there in terms of predicting who's going to respond to Hydosol 2. Yeah, you know, I actually interviewed Dr. McDermott, but the thing that I was trying to figure out, because it was a fair number of patients in terms of just a series of people who'd been treated this way, was trying to figure out in terms of like patient advice when you say, well, what's the chance that you're going to respond or you're going to have a long response? What did you think about these data compared to maybe what you've been telling your patients to expect? Well, this is a little bit more promising. I mean, you know, we, we're so making too. we're making some progress here. We didn't have the dramatic leap we were looking for, and CA9 as an individual predictor didn't pan out. But overall, I would say that this is showing in a multi-center prospective study that we're getting better at selecting who should be getting hydrocinerleukin 2. And maybe we're taking a little bit of the emotion out of it because now we've got some really good alternative therapies to offer people to high-dose IL-2. It's not the only treatment available. So maybe we are being a little bit more selective. But in doing so, we're seeing response rates now close to a third, close to 30% or so. And that really suggests to me that, hey, this is something patients can enter into with a legitimate chance that, hey, I can get a at least a partial response. And the duration of those responses is still years. So we're looking at still a very long duration of response. We're continuing to have a slow but steady increase in our selection approach for these patients, even if we can't necessarily define it around a molecular marker. I think the other renal paper that I would highlight here is the phase two study presented by the French group led by Bernard Escudier, looking at the combination of temsirolimus and bevacizumab versus sutent versus bevacizumab interferon in terms of progression-free survival at one year was the primary endpoint looking at in this randomized phase two. And concerning what they found was increased toxicity associated with the temsirolimus bevacizumab arm in an inferior 12-month progression-free survival rate for that arm. Now, there's a couple of things I'll point out here. And I think, you know, Dr. Scudier really tried to put the nail in the coffin on the combination of mTOR and VEGF inhibition. And I think that's still premature. A couple of things I'll point out here. 
One, I think they did not allow for dose reductions. So there was basically toxicity and then off-study for the management of these patients. So to what extent patients could be rechallenged with lower dose of either temsirolimus or bevacizumab was not really investigated in this study. Patients had toxicity and they came off. So to some extent, we may have undermined the effect of the combination by not allowing a little bit more dosing flexibility. I think the second thing is to recognize that bevacizumab is a very specific agent. It's targeting specifically VEGFA. And although the multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors, such as sunitinib, have been difficult to combine with mTOR inhibitors, some of these newer generation tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are a little bit more specific around the VEGF receptor, particularly axitinib and tevotinib, or the AVEO compound, those drugs may, in fact, be a little bit easier to combine with an mTOR inhibitor and could potentially show a little bit greater synergy, specifically by blocking a little bit more proximal to mTOR at the VEGF receptor. And then the last thing is that we're now seeing a number of PI3 kinase or dual mTOR inhibitors coming into development. And that mechanism may be a way of perhaps further blocking on this combination strategy. The concern I have for the field is that we are looking at progression-free survival in all of our studies. And at the end of the day, how far is that going to get us in advancing this field? To me, what we need to be doing is a little bit more of what we do with high-dose IL-2, looking for the complete responders, looking for that really duration of response associated with this treatment effect, even off-drug. So to what extent some of these combinations can be developed with a little bit higher intensity, but for a little bit more dramatic, complete response. And I'm not sure that this particular combination, bevacizumab, temsirolimus, is going to get us there, but I wouldn't necessarily say the rationale for VEGF and mTOR is dead in renal cell carcinoma. And that's my concern is for sure, you know, we need to be careful about how we use these agents in our clinical practice together because the data is not necessarily robust enough to warrant that kind of combination effect. But I wouldn't take it to the extreme to say we shouldn't be doing more of these studies.